Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray. And- well, Ryan Ray is here. I am the Brett Favre Podcast, as you all know, but Josh Shelton once again has slacked off. So we brought in the big gun himself, Dr. Anas Alahaji. Anas, it is great to have you on. Uh, how are you doing today, sir? Thank you. Well, I'm doing great. I feel way better now that uh, the Ever Given is already out of the narrow area of the canal. Well, okay. You kind of let's just get right into it. Um, but first, real quick, if you want to support the show, you can do so by the War Room newsletter. We'll put a link in for a 30% discount um, in the show notes. So check that out. But yeah, let's talk about this. We've had a ship lodged in the canal. Uh, for how was it a week? How long was that? Five it's days been a week. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, for folks who have heard the term the Suez Canal, maybe a quick backstory on what the Suez Canal was or is, and how the ship got stuck. Well, uh, how how far how how far <laughs> back you want to go? <laughs> we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll skip from the time of we'll skip um, forward after the time of um, Adam and Eve. So somewhere. <laughs> All right. But th- th- there are some really interesting story to mention anyway. Um, you know, the, the idea of the canal of connecting the Red Sea and the Mediterranean is probably as old as uh, humanity in that area. Uh, so even the pharaohs tried to create the canal, etc. But uh, the uh, real one uh, happened uh, in um, 1800, late 1800s. But uh, it was financed by Europeans, but oil tankers were banned from entering, from going to the canal because they thought oil tankers at that time, the main product that the everyone wanted at that time was kerosene, and kerosene is very flammable. So when the Noble Brothers basically built the first oil tanker, and then everyone realized, oh, we don't have to use those barrels to uh, ship it on barges and ships and they created the first oil tanker and then they start building tankers after that because kerosene was flammable the owners of the canal basically prohibited any oil tanker from passing the canal and then shell at that time built a very special tanker that different from any other tanker and it's not only for kerosene, it can ship anything. And they knew to compete with the Rockefellers in Asia and the rest of the world, they need to pass the canal because they, they can have a cost advantage of crossing the canal. So they played the game. And the game they played basically is this. They shall built the, um, the, the boat, the oil tanker, the insurer was Lloyd, and several Lloyd uh, uh, board members were also members of the board of the canal. So they talked to the investors, they talked to the insurers, etc., and the board of the canal came up with the idea. Said, "Okay, well, if Lloyd can come up with a with kind of exact description of what kind of ships can go safely." then we will take it. Or we can create our own list of conditions. Well, they did create their own list of, of conditions, and it ended up, it's the same one that Lloyd created, and Lloyd basically was the insurer of the ship itself. 
and then it passed. The only problem is only shell tankers can pass because they are the only one who have those characteristics and those conditions. Oh, wow. Anyway, uh, so uh, oil starts passing through the canal. Uh, uh, it's in 18, uh, 1890s, and it's been going on since then. But the canal got stopped uh, several times in the past. Uh, the major ones basically were all political reasons in 1956 when the canal was uh, nationalized and uh, Egypt was uh, attacked uh, by three countries, including the French and the Israelis and the British. Uh, the United States put massive pressure on them to withdraw, basically, but the canal was closed at that time. Uh, and uh, it, it got closed in uh, 1967, but after that got closed for a long period because they did not open it until 1975. Strangely enough, it was an exactly, exactly by the day, eight years. So it's been closed by eight years uh, uh, at that time. Uh, but we had several incidents in the canal that uh, closed the canal, but not more than like hours or two, three days. And the world did not even feel it. Uh, this is the longest non-political uh, uh, incident in the canal ever. And the issue here is this. What are the ramifications for the insurance companies from this? Because the cost is in billions of dollars. Right. Right. And the issue here is if the insurance company of the company that owns the Ever Given is, is stuck with billions of dollars, then will insurance rates on the largest tankers go up if they pass the canal? Because if you got to look at it mathematically or statistically, you cannot eliminate the chance. It might happen. So if insurance companies end up raising rates significantly on, on the largest ships, to cross the canal, then the canal is going to lose customers. But they are not going to be the oil tankers, even the VLLC, even the largest tankers, especially those are coming from the south, that's coming from the Gulf. Mostly they are Bahri, the company that uh, uh, basically uh, shipped the uh, Aramco oil. And the reason why these insurance rates will not apply to the oil tankers simply because those oil tankers, as they are heading north, before at the beginning of the canal, there is a small uh, town there called Ayn al-Sukhna. And Ayn al-Sukhna, there is uh, a pipeline called Sumid Pipeline, that's the waste Mediterranean, so Sumid, uh, that goes uh, from the beginning of the canal and then it goes uh, west and then tilt north and goes to the Mediterranean. So what those tankers do is they come in there, they unload some of their load, and they float higher. So the tighter part of the ship basically will pass through the canal. They, so they are not going to have the same problem those ships have, and they can cross the canal without any problems. Then they can go to the other side, get that oil or probably some oil that's been stored before in the same amount, or some other ship will come and take it from the Mediterranean. So this story of the insurance, I think, is going to be a big story in the coming uh, days. 
but I don't uh, expect it to affect the um, uh, biggest oil tankers coming from the south simply because of the usage of the uh, Sumid uh, pipeline. Now, is it true that the, that the ship lost power and that's what allowed it to be blown to the side, or was it just the winds were that strong, or do we know yet? We Okay, the facts we know from the Egyptian officials that weather was a factor, but it wasn't the main factor. And they mentioned factors with S, which means oh. that there were other reasons. And if you look at the... Uh, 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 the how the uh, ship was behaving before it hit the sides and got stuck, it seemed there was something wrong because the speed was higher than usual. It was uh, so like someone who is drunk driving a small car. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so there was something awfully wrong even before the accident. We don't know what it is. They promised that they are going to release that information. Here's the problem. I think the Egyptians are going to study the insurance contract of the company. And they are going to be extremely careful in releasing information on the causes for a simple reason. Because if there is a reason where the insurance will not pay, no one will get paid. Right. So if the Egyptians make the wrong statement, the Egyptians are not going to be paid and compensated even for the work they've done. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And all the others who suffered are not going to be paid either. If it was some reason, there is some fine print in that policy says they, they are not going to pay it because of this mistake, for example, or this happened. So I think the Egyptians are going to come up with a statement and they are going to be careful in releasing all the information uh, uh, to avoid not getting paid based on the fine print in that policy. Yeah, and I mean, I've looked at some of these policies before on international shipping, and, you know, as a small, I was, what I was going to do is be very small import to the U.S., and, you know, you have all these weird contingencies and clauses, like I think one of them was, you know, the insurance would, would not cover if a Russian sub sank the ship in the middle of the sea or something like that. It's like, <laughs> so well, there's a lot of weird... Uh, we, have, we, have, we have some friends on Twitter, basically, who raised the issue of possible cyber attack okay and if it is if it is for example where, where that fits in the insurance policy right okay so that's why i think the egyptians are going to take their time to think about the 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 statement they are going to make on the causes because uh if the, the company itself there is no way they can afford uh, compensating anyone and they can go bankrupt and that's it Mm -hmm. uh, on the compensation, by the way, uh, any service, I mean, everything in the Swiss Canal is paid, which means that you need to cross, you have to pay based on a certain schedule. But if you get any other services, whatever the service is, you have to pay. So all those tug tugboats uh, and dredgers and other things, they will get paid in full because that's a service, it's not a free service. So they have to pay, the company has to pay or the insurance company has to pay for all the service of freeing it. And those boats that came in from uh, Netherlands and other places, all of them will get paid. Right. Okay, uh, real quick, um, two things. One, there's a lot of chatter about who controls the canal or both sides of the canal. Maybe unpack that for us. And two, have you been, um, have you been surprised the way oil prices have responded during this? Um, Okay, a couple of things here. Um, 
uh, first of all, I did take, uh, I was a guest of the Canal Authority in 2007, and and uh, I spent uh, uh, a whole day there, and they took me on a tour in the canal and around the building and around the, the, the I mean, the main office building, etc. I am very impressed, and I am still very impressed. The Canal Authority is just, to, to Egypt, is like just like Aramco to Saudi Arabia. Is the center of technology. It's where people get paid very well, very well, uh, uh, kind of the, in terms of training experience. Uh, uh, people speak several languages. Uh, I mean, just like the Aramco to Saudi Arabia. And I am very, very impressed. And what they do basically is when a ship comes in, let's say there is a ship in the Red Sea and is going to cross the canal, ahead of time, they contact the authority and tell them all the information about the ship. In a sense, they submit their paperwork to the ship. And they will get instructions. And at a certain point, the ship basically, there will be a small boat with an Egyptian officer who will climb up and go to the ship and help the captain navigate the canal all the way to the end. So there is always an Egyptian guide. So for the Egyptians, it's not only they know the communications of the ever given, supposedly there is an Egyptian guy on the ship itself, and he's going right. to give them even more information. And uh, with that, basically, that's how they navigate the uh, navigate the canal, because those guys, they've been doing this for a long time. They've been well-trained, and they are going to tell the, guy, the, the, the captains what, what to do and how to kind of just maneuver around various things in the area. The... Uh, and of course, uh, when they enter the canal, there is a method of payment. There are all kind of, uh, there's a lot of logistics involved. And when I had the meeting with the head of the canal at that time, it's not this one that, that like, uh, there is one in between between them. So the, that was uh, uh, two ago, uh, t more than 10 years ago, to what, 13, 14 years ago. And the guy had three phones on his on his desk. One page color. I remember the old phones with the oh, yeah. things they had to die. Uh, so one page, one black, and one red. And at the start of the meeting, he told me flat out. He was one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. He told me flat out, if the red phone rings, he has to pick it up. <laughs> okay? So he kind of ap apologized from the beginning that I can ignore other phone, but I cannot ignore the red phone. Gotta, that's that's uh, the bat line. And one wants that, and we're, and uh, in a sense, I had my team with me, and in a sense, I was wishing while I was there that the phone right. were the phone, red phone were ring because I want to see something live, <laughs> and it did, it did, and it turns out it is an ambassador of one African country, and they have a, a container ship that got stuck. In the canal, it did not get stuck. There was some like an engine problem, and got stuck, and it halted traffic. And he wanted uh, to call the head of the canal to make sure that they will do their utmost. We can kind of ensure them that if you guys take care of us, we will pay you. We'll kind of uh, you know make personal statements. And then the guy hanged up, and he used the uh, black phone, and he called someone else, and he said, literally. Even if that ship sank, we can remove it within three hours. Wow. 
and I believe him in terms of it's sank because it's not getting stuck in the mud or anything else. And there are many incidents that the world do not know about that they rescue ships all the time. And in fact, uh, today on my Twitter account, I posted a story while everyone was busy with the Ever Given. There was another, uh, another container ship that lost uh, uh, power and uh, got stuck. And it was rescued by the Egyptians, but no one knew about it because it wasn't that important or it did not block anything. Oh, wow. Uh, so they do that all the time and they are really qualified to it. What happened with the Ever Given is something historic, something that no one in the world had experience with. It's just different. And think about it this way. You have this 22,000 ton ship at a high speed going and then hitting the bank and literally going into the desert. So you have right. probably about 15 to 20 feet right there in the bank itself in the desert at, at a depth of about 16 feet. I mean, just like going into like a wall and just going through it and uh, uh, got stuck. And they never experienced something like this. And no one in the world had an experience like this. And I think one issue that people did not appreciate was you've seen all those pictures on Twitter and social media, how they showed the, the, the canal and how the ship is getting stuck in from both sides and it's mm -hmm. empty and, and there is only water beneath it in the middle. Well, what people did not realize is if you try to move the sand from beneath it from the front and because it's weight, it sinks farther. Mm. And that was one of the reasons why they got delayed, because the more uh, sand they moved, it just keeps sinking. And now they need to remove more and more oh, because of that. When it, hit the, when it hit the sand, it probably went up into the sand. Correct. So. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Makes sense. Correct. So, so that was uh, it. Since no one has experience with this, now let's face it, there was a major PR problem, and they failed miserably. In their PR, they failed miserably in terms of communicating with the media. No one can deny that. Uh, deny that, and I think they realized this yesterday when they when they at least their top experts and advisors to the media. I think one advisor was on the media for a straight like eight hours straight, jumping <laughs> from TV station to TV station. But it was too late. On the sixth day, yeah. uh, they were able to realize this. But it was a total uh, uh, failure. Uh, in, in terms of PR and communication, I don't think there was a failure on the effort. Uh, I think this is, was a historic event that was something never happened before, no one has experience with. But from my visit in 2007 and what I studied and learned, uh, it's because I wrote a long report on that, uh, they have the capability to deal with uh, uh, big issues, but not as big as this one. And I think now this will give them more experience on dealing with with even bigger issues than the past. Okay, let's talk real quick about prices. Uh, we got guests coming on here in about ten minutes. Um, prices right now, as we see them, are at WTS just above sixty. Brent's at sixty three. Um, you know, the Saudis twice have given us a surprise, a gift, however you want to phrase it. I've kind of <laughs> viewed that as the Saudis don't think the man's back. What's kind of been your read on what the Saudis have been doing and what might we expect? The next time OPEC meets. Okay. 
Uh, first of all, uh, there is a debate out there on what is the impact of the closure of the Swiss Canal on oil prices. Mm -hmm. And everything you see basically say, well, prices just went up by $2, so it's minimal. It's not, because prices should have declined. And the uh, largest decline basically would be about $7. So prices should have been about 57 for Brent. Uh, and I'm talking about like the maximum difference in this case. Uh, so we should not compare just the increase. We should compare of what the prices would have been without the event versus the current prices. And the difference probably at maximum is about $7. So the impact is large. But the other impact that people do not realize is this. Uh, <clears throat> those ships are going to certain countries, to certain markets. And those ships are carrying certain petroleum products. So the impact is only, <clears throat> in this case, on certain countries, certain regions, in certain products. Mm -hmm. It's not like a, a total world shortage in crude or diesel or gasoline. No. So if you look at a country like Syria, for example, the, they already start uh, kind of rationing uh, the use because they expected those Iranian ships coming from Iran carrying gasoline to be delayed and they are not going to have gasoline, for example. So the impact is going to be limited to certain countries, certain areas, and to certain, uh, uh, to certain products. Uh, the Saudis, especially Prince Abdelaziz, do not like to be outguessed and they, don't, they like to be unpredictable. So I am talking right now at the risk of angering the press <laughs> just because of that. Uh, if you look at uh, the current market situation, it makes perfect sense that the, uh, uh, the old planned increase in production they the planned last year is not going to happen. Remember, they were kind of adding production uh, every and and so uh, at least we are we are going to see a rollover of what we had. Whether the Saudis roll over the one million or not, that remains a big question. Generally speaking, it looks like they are going to roll it because it makes it makes sense. In this case, as long as prices are uh, above sixty, we are fine. We are not going to see that many surprises. If prices go above seventy, and stay there or they go back to the low 50s, that's where the surprises are going to be. But that, but the Saudis read on this is that, the, I guess my question is, is that we hear a lot of news about demand coming back, demand coming back. We know U.S. production is, no, is not where it used to be. So demand is not back yet, despite what we hear in the media. Is that kind of right? The, the demand is not back yet, but we do have serious problems too. Remember, uh, we were expecting uh, the U.S. Uh, oil inventories, that commercial crude oil inventories, to decline and continue declining. And all of a sudden, we went up by 25 million because of, of the freeze in Texas. So we are above 500 million barrels right now in the United States. We should be right now, based on, on the earlier forecast, we should be around 465. So we are already about 40 million above the forecast. That's a crisis. That's a problem. So there is a lot of pressure on that. At the same time, refinery uh, utilization is not going up. Still very weak. And so how long does it take to unwind all that, you think? Um, 
it is, it's going to take time. I think we, we are not going to be able to realize what's going on until probably July to see where the trend is going to be. Uh, but the main conclusion here is it is very clear that the Saudis uh, wanted to continue with their policy and they are adamant that they, want, they don't want to see prices in the 40s and 50s. They cannot say it simply because of that uh, uh, stupid and uh, OPEC in, in the Senate and Congress. Uh, so they cannot talk about prices. They talk about market balances. Uh, but we are still far away from a market balance. Well, right. And we're sitting here looking at these prices. So U.S. producers, um, energy sector has done really well in the stock market. And so if prices stay here, I know we had a lot of talk about crude quality. Um, uh, you know, I think this time last year we were on the show. <laughs> some of those issues have kind of resolved themselves. Um, the best spot for U.S. producers right now, if the market can stay, I mean, they would obviously like the price to be higher. But if it could just stay 60 for some time, that would be good for them, right? It is, but uh, uh, if we are talking about uh, shell producers, shell producers have several problems. And at least we can say that the experience of 2016, 2017, where we had this massive growth, although prices were relatively low, uh, happened because they, they drilled so many wells around and they figured out where the core of the core is. And then they moved to the core of the core and they wrote off everything expensive and all of a sudden, we have this massive increase in efficiency and massive decrease in costs. Well, now we are in the core in the, of the core. We don't have another core to move to. So that's the major issue that we, we are, that's not going to be repeated. And whatever efficiency in terms of management or technology, that is really small. It's not going to make a big difference. The big difference historically was location. It's all, it was all about location. Now, that issue of location is not going to be. That's number one. Number two, we have this uh, issue where the, is there money there to financial? Yes, but it's way less than before. Well, okay, so on that, my theory has been um, the Saudis in OPEC doing the month-to-month -month, uh, meeting really has prevented the shell producers from going and getting money because instead of it being from you know June to October, it's, well, the Saudis could change their mind on a month-to-month -month basis, and so the big banks and Wall Street is going to be a lot more hesitant to do a deal with the shell producer because the Saudis are meeting and OPEC's meeting on a monthly basis. Now, I know they theoretically could have met specially, a special meeting any time before, but now it's, it's there. It's every 30 days, 45 days, whatever. They're sitting down. They're talking. And so that, I think, also will keep the money out of the shell producers because you have those, these meetings that are just back to back to back. What do you think about that? I heard from some friends uh, the following. If you go and attend board meetings of certain companies, some of those board members are completely convinced that what the Saudis did on March 7th and 8th, 2020, mm -hmm. when they had the problems with OPEC Plus meeting on the 6th, and then they had those problems with the Russians, and the Russians decided to walk and, and do their own way. Then the Saudis decided, remember when they cut the posted oh, prices, yeah. and then they increased production by, to 12 million, etc. They are completely convinced that the Saudis can do that at any time. So the idea here is, even without the monthly meetings, that idea is in the heads of the board members. Mm. Now you add the monthly meeting to it, and it becomes more serious. Mm. So in a sense, that sword is on the neck of all of them all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's a serious fear that this is going to happen. 
However, we, uh, I just want to emphasize a point that I mentioned on this show several times in the past. What does Saudi Arabia want from shale? Or what does OPEC want from shale? Do they want to kill shale in general? No. They need it. Do they want to kill shale growth? No. They need it. Then what do they want? They want shale to grow in proportion or in, in a way that matches the growth in world demand in a sense where they can divide the pie. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you know what? If the uh, global oil demand is growing at a million barrels, you take 400, leave 600 to others. But if you are going to take the whole million, then I'm going to be mad and I'm going to do something. Yeah. So they want shale. They want shale to, to stay. They want shale to grow, but on a, not, not to take their part of the pot. So where we're sitting right now, um, let's see here. We've got just about a minute or two before a guest comes on, and we'll go to him. But where, where are we sitting at right now, uh, which is you know, late March, about to be April, what are you looking at for the rest of the year as far as prices go, as far as U.S. shell production goes? Um, we're, we're, I mean, I know we had a roundtable last October, and we kind of we all we all kind of pretty pessimistic. Are you still kind of pessimistic about the U.S. shell industry for this year, um, or do you think things might rebalance uh, in, in the second half? Uh, generally speaking, shale production will grow. But that growth is going to be limited. We are not going to recover to 2019 or 2018 levels. It will take, it will take time. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, it is very clear that the CEOs of the biggest shale companies realized a lesson after eight years. And they realized that it's, it's out of all, uh, everyone in the shale industry it's ironic that all those CEOs, all of a sudden, they agreed with Harold Ham, who said the same thing in 2015. All of a sudden, if you really want to assess it, all of a sudden, the genius of the industry is Harold Ham. But no one gave him credit in 2015. And now everyone is saying what Harold Ham said in 2015. Well, oh, old Harold, we could probably spend a lot of time. <laughs> Break it down. I, so, I like the guy. I really like the guy. Uh, you know, so uh, I see our guests in the back room. We'll, we'll bring him on. But uh, so, uh, you know, Harold's one of those guys that it's hard, like there's some like uh, the Enterprise Depco CEO. I can't think of his name right now. When he speaks, I pretty much take what he says as he's a straight shooter. He's gospel. Like it's in Harold Ham and uh, the Pioneer CEO. I kind of when they speak, I'm kind of like, mm. Are they selling their book? Are they being honest? So each CEO, I just kind of got to take a different with. And Harold, I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes he's, sometimes I think he's really insightful, and sometimes I think he's more. Um... Let, let me tell you about Harold Ham. I was in, a, in, in an event, and I met him several times before, and I really wanted something from him. So I walked to him, and I told him that I want to send him some materials, and he gave me his business card. And when I took it and uh, I looked at it, and there was no phone number, there was no email, there was nothing. No, I mean, just like a name, and there is no contact information. So I went back to him. I said, how am I going to send you this? You give me the card. I cannot send you this. And he said, well, just call this number. And he mentioned the name of a lady, and she can give you the information. And I told him, oh, by the way, I own this many shares in CLR. <laughs> And he looked at me, he said, hold on just a second. He, he pulled another card and he gave it to me. <laughs> and he wrote on it, he said, please 
sent to this to this email, this, 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 this. And so the advice to any analyst here in the world is if you are focusing on a company, you want to deal with them, make sure you are a shareholder so they can <laughs> kind of <laughs> look at you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Let's bring on um, Fidel. I see you're muted. Bring on Fidel Garza. Let's see here. Put him on the big screen here. So me and Anas go to uh, the side. There we go. Fidel, how's it going, buddy? Good morning, gentlemen. How are you hey. guys? All right. Why don't morning. you give a quick introduction for folks who aren't familiar with you? Uh, obviously, down there in South Texas with Lissy Energy Enterprises. That's correct. Uh, my name is uh, Fidel Garza. I'm a co-founder of Lissy Energy Enterprises. Uh, we're a company that originally started uh, putting uh, deals together for uh, uh, oil and gas uh, landowners, uh, finding them uh, uh, people that wanted uh, EMP companies that wanted to produce their their uh, their properties, uh, their royalties, and uh, we went from uh, that and ex actually started expanding our uh, our services to renewable energy uh, as well, uh, mainly uh, wind and solar. And uh, now this past year, we actually expanded ourselves into a, a development company of, of renewable energy. Uh, we still have the oil and gas deals that uh, come by here and there, but our new concentration is mainly uh, renewable energy. But uh, we're, uh, you know, agnostic for energy. We're uh, anything, any uh, source of energy we're, we're happy to work with. Well, I know one of the things that we've heard a lot about is kind of... Um... I know Anas has some thoughts on this as well, but it's kind of the idea of, you know, the wind and the solar and, you know, where, what role does it play? And uh, you have the carbon credits and the carbon offsets. And it's kind of been a controversial topic. I've been energy agnostic for some period of time because, you know, when you go internationally, when you go to a small village in Zambia, you, when you talk about energy policy and how it should work there, you can't, that's not the same as right outside the Metroplex. So, you know, from your, your perspective the past few months, maybe what's been missed in some of the energy narrative um, and, I know carbon credits are kind of a big, a big thing. And so is, is that going to be something that we're going to see more oil and gas companies move through voluntarily? Or do you think legislation will have to push them there? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I think the market is, is, is going in that direction to be a more diversified uh, portfolio of energies. Uh, I, I would believe it would be a mistake not to uh, go into these new areas, uh, a lot of potential in, in, in developing a, uh, new infrastructures and with what happened recently in Texas with, with the blackout, with the, the freeze, that basically told the, the, the market that in Texas, specifically because we're a, a concentrated grid, it's not open to, to the rest of the country, we definitely need to develop more of these projects, wind and solar, to uh, compensate and to complement uh, uh, the gas and, and whatnot when it comes to these electrical powers. So I think there there does need to have those tax incentives. I, I, I think it's very beneficial to everyone, all parties involved, including the the taxpayer, which will and they'll get end up they'll end up getting cheaper um, electricity in the long run and more reliable uh, power when uh, uh, you know one hundred year uh, winter storms like that happen. You know so. Anas? Yes. Um, uh, um, now, my my question is uh, when you, when you, and and I encounter these problems uh, all the time with 
uh, uh, people from the left basically attacking me for uh, being in the fossil fuel industry. So what, what really on the ground, I mean, when you tell people, especially young students, I am in solar and wind and fossil fuel, what, are there like specific stories you'd like to share with us on this and how, how it works out with you? So uh, I don't have any specific story that I can share, but I, I can give you my view on that. Um, you know, uh, like I said, we started oil and gas, and it so happened that we came across it because of a demand for uh, for people, the, the ranchers and, and, and landowners that needed to uh, have uh, uh, some protection for their uh, for for their income, you know, to maintain their farms. And uh, this was something that we decided to uh, go and help uh, uh, be a part of. Uh, we wanted to make sure that the deals that we're getting done were going to be uh, beneficial to the landowner and, and, and not just the, the, the industry uh, leaders of, of oil, oil and gas. So uh, with that said, we came across other ranchers that had this resource of wind and solar, and especially in Texas. Solar is big in Texas. You know, the sun shines here most of the time in the year. So uh, they want to be able to uh, monetize every aspect of their properties, not just uh, uh, with uh, livestock and and uh, and uh, crops and whatnot. So when we uh, started doing that, we decided uh, we were not, there was no reason to pick a side. I, I think it's a, a question that should be relevant to the dynamic of, of, of the situation. Right now, especially with COVID, what we need to get down to is, is building infrastructure and creating these new jobs that will help um, people that, that have been uh, left out uh, because of this downturn in, in, in prices and, and whatnot. And, and they haven't been able to uh, go to work because of, of the epidemic. So uh, th this is really kind of, I mean, you touched on, on an important point because in those discussions uh, about these issues that here is a farmer who wants to maximize his portfolio in a sense because it is at the end of portfolio and and he is maximizing his portfolio and he wanted people to help him and you guys are there and you are helping those farmers basically maximize their portfolios and uh, the problem with i mean it makes perfect sense okay the problem with people on the far left is they look at it, they say no 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 you have to take that fossil fuel out and they don't realize you know what? If it is your farm, will you do that? Or do you say this as long as it's someone else's money? You are trying. You are willing to uh, to sacrifice. And uh, in 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 our world, especially on on uh, Twitter, we get uh, attacked uh, uh, left and right uh, from. Uh, I mean, sometimes serious criticism. We have no problem with serious criticism at all. But uh, seriously, the, the, the extreme left is going crazy uh, and they cannot, literally what you just mentioned to us, they cannot handle those ideas. They cannot understand what those farmers basically wanted and why uh, they needed your help. And, and this is a big problem right now. No, yes, I, I understand everything you're saying. You know, uh, it's a it's a very peculiar situation that that we find in. Uh, I, I don't particularly believe politics should play a hand in uh, energy, and uh, the only way I, I believe uh, politics should play a part is in uh, benefiting the market 
and and the the developers and, and the the people working in the in these industries um you know they should be working together not not a, a left versus right you know I, I believe both sides have uh try to paint a picture that that isn't accurate uh for the normal person on the street for the normal person in the in the, in the field whether it's it's a solar field or, or, or the, or the oil and gas field. And honestly, a lot of times, um, those fields are actually have those, those, uh, type of, of products on the infrastructure on the properties. You know, uh, we've, we've done, uh, worked on projects with, uh, oil and gas that have wind and solar and, and vice versa, you know? So I believe that shouldn't be, uh, something that should be in the, the conversation. The only thing I can say is that, uh, you know, new technologies are coming, things change, uh, and industries mature and, and have a, a lifespan that fluctuates. Uh, I do believe that we do need a, on the right to and the left, we do need to consider different types of energy and develop those, those uh, infrastructures and, and supplies so that we can continue being uh, dominant in the market um, as well. Uh, we do have to, uh, when it comes to oil and gas, we do have to improve, I would say, on uh, efficiency of, of uh, the production, the, not the production, the how much we get out of out of out of oil and gas, and, and make it more of um, uh, use it wholeheartedly, and, and not. Um, I, I believe when we burn some of it, we don't we don't burn a hundred percent of the energy that that is needed. So there is uh, improvement that we have to do on on both sides of this. So I've seen some talk about um, using you know renewables to power oil and gas. I know some people use flare mitigation to, to power oil and gas. Uh, what can you tell us about that? And maybe what are some of the, some of the concerns? Being that we did see you know these power, these entities uh, kind of drop power during the freeze. So uh, I read recently that Halliburton started using uh, one of their their frac uh, rigs. That it's going to be powered by uh, by renewable energy, um, which I found was very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, they were going to go away from 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 uh, using some of the more uh, uh, normal ways that they they power their their um, their rigs, uh, mainly uh, a gas, and uh, that's something that I thought was very interesting. And um, a lot of these, you know. The oil majors, they have high significant investments in renewable energies. And uh, some of them have said, uh, I've seen the, I was it the CEO of a, a BP saying that they were going to be expanding uh, and have some kind of uh, date in the near future, 2030, 2040, I believe, where they were going to be predominantly doing different natures of the energy business. So um, with that said, uh, I don't see any issues, honestly, um, with what's going on. I believe that uh, politics does definitely needs to step aside and let the market do what the market needs to do. Okay. Um, tell people where they can find more about you and your company if they want to connect and find out more about what you guys got going on. Sure. So uh, you can find us at uh, thisenergy.com, and uh, we're actually producing um, – we're developing right now five different projects, uh, three wind, two solar. And uh, we have a lot of um, uh, capital right now that we're raising and uh, that, that'll 
has benefits benefits to um, any uh, oil uh, companies that need that that tax write-off and whatnot. Um, also, any PPAs, uh, then they need a you know it's it's actually funny um, in West Texas a lot of the the oil and gas um, uh, that that they're developing out there. Um, a lot of the power right now of wind and solar actually goes into those those uh, those rigs yes. that, that are working out there. Yes. So that uh, that power isn't even actually consumed in the Dallas, you know, San Antonio, Houston area. It doesn't even get out of West Texas. So that that tells us we have a lot of room to grow and a lot of space to run, so that we can get to the metropolitan cities and whatnot. So right right now, that's that's actually an interesting dynamic that I, I recently found out a, a couple of months ago. And that just tells me that there's a lot of uh, synergy between these energies that need to a, need a go uh, hand in hand in, in, in some aspects. Okay, let me, let me ask, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, just kind of a quick question. In the oil industry, when a company goes to a farm, for example, and they want to drill in it, they they, they will give like uh, uh, the uh, the farmer uh, like a check for a certain amount, and then they agree on royalties over time. How does the wind and the solar companies work with the farmers on this? Do they say do they do exactly like what the oil companies do, or there is kind of a different formula? Uh, there's a different formula, but uh, like everything, um, when every, when anything's being negotiated. Uh, there's a lot of different scenarios that can that can uh, play a part. You know, uh, some of them, uh, some other developers, what they'll do is is they'll only pay a royalty if there's actually a wind farm on their property. Uh, what we do, LSC Energy, is we don't do that. We we have a whole acreage, a big block that we use, and uh, depending on whether you have a turbine on your property or not, you're going to be sharing in the productivity of that resource. Uh, some of them also pay uh, rent. Uh, I guess you consider rent for having the, the turbine placement on the property. But um, right now, I believe there's still a lot of room and creativity that can go into these these um, contracts and leases for now and for, for the near future. So the farmer you are working with, for example, is going to get uh, some money out of the electricity produced from the wind turbine that's right? correct okay yes. so in case of rent whether you guys are doing it or others in south texas how much is the rent per acre per year uh you know i, I would like to give a number like like you do in oil and gas but that that's not exactly how it, it uh it it's uh put together currently right now a lot of things play a factor whether how close you are to the transmission lines to how how viable the resource actually is, so it can actually fluctuate from South Texas, even in the same South Texas area, from here to I'm located in Laredo, Texas. So from here to like let's say Corpus, where they have a lot of uh, wind farms, it can definitely fluctuate a lot. So it'd be hard for me to give that kind of number. Uh, but the the benefit of, um, for example, just in the in the royalty aspect of this, you know, in oil and gas, you have a commodity price. And um, in wind and solar, you, you don't. What you do have is you have a variation throughout the year of what is expected to be produced. And the price doesn't change because the prices are locked in for 30, 40 years. So. 
Okay, no, that, that's nice. All right, Fidel, thank you so much for hopping on. Lissy Energy, that's L-Y-S-S-Y Energy.com is the website. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, best of luck to you guys in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Fidel. Thanks. All right, let's see here, Mr. Anas. Let's get this. Uh, there we go. You know, I, I really like the idea uh, of, of uh, the farmer sharing the revenues from the outputs of the uh, wind turbines and the solar. I never heard this before, uh, but this is amazing. That's economics at its best. There you go. Okay, so we're gonna we usually have uh, after our guests a quick segment called the Texas Roundup, but today we won't have that because Josh isn't here. And us, I do want you. I'm gonna throw this theory out. We didn't talk about this, so you're not prepared. Um, but I've been really thinking about the U.S. status of the reserve currency, and that's gonna tie into oil and gas here in a second. And I really think from a, just putting off whatever side. This isn't a pro America, anti America, pro anything. This is just strictly a what is happening in the world. And the push for a challenge to the reserve currency is coming from China. We saw a 25-year deal struck with Iran over the weekend. It's coming from Bitcoin. We've seen that Bitcoin's getting play. And then you also see that uh, like India is talking about banning Bitcoin, and we can debate whether that's possible or not. That's a separate issue. There is a threat to the reserve currency. Um, and that, that, that would impact oil and gas, it would seem, that we have companies who right now are looking at Bitcoin as an alternative to for flare mitigation we talked about as a way to raise revenue. Um, but maybe just 30 seconds, 45 seconds, I, I'm kidding, <laughs> the next few minutes, maybe unpack the importance or is it important that the, that the U.S. dollar saves reserve currency for oil prices or how might that be impacted as we see these things unroll? Because if China and Iran are doing a 25-year deal, they're going to figure out a way around the dollar unless, unless the U.S. is going to uh, uh, lift the sanctions on Iran. The issue you raised basically and the discussion has been going on for 40 years. So it's been going on for a long time, and many predictions basically failed. But we, we have certain issues we have to focus on when we have this discussion, and we have to agree on from the beginning. First of all, we have to distinguish between oil pricing in dollar and getting revenues in non-dollar. Mm. It's a very important discussion or distinction. Getting revenues in dollars could happen in any time, at any time, even 20 years ago or 20 years from now, this is not a big deal. A country can just convert the currency or tell the buyer, I need the money in this, and they can, the buyer can convert it. But the pricing of oil itself has been in dollar and is still in dollar and will stay in dollar. As I, as, as I mentioned on, on Twitter, basically, the only time where oil will be stopped from being priced in dollar if the U.S. as a nation collapses. Aside from that, there is no reason to price any the, the oil in any other currency. But in terms of revenues, and I think back to your point, and that's what you meant, is what if those countries start converting their own foreign reserves to non-dollar? Mm -hmm. What if they start converting uh, every revenue they get to non-dollar? Mm -hmm. Well, there is something possible and something not possible. What is unique about the U.S. dollar is two things. First of all, it has worldwide acceptance, even from those who never went to school in their life. Strangely enough, if, if you are dealing with a mafia or criminals and you put on the table all types of money, including Bitcoin and gold and diamond, and you want to pay them and tell them to choose, 
Number one, they will choose the US dollar. They will choose others as second choice because of certain limitations. But even the mafia until today, they prefer dollars. Even when you talk to the Russian Russians or the Iranians, they still provide they still prefer the dollar. So it has worldwide acceptance. And the second point is we have liquidity. There is no other currency in the world that has that liquidity. And virtual currencies, etc., they don't have that liquidity. So oil trade is the largest trade in the world. And we need enough liquidity to cover it. And the only currency that can do that is the US dollar. The uh, Probably you heard the discussions we had with some of your friends uh, on the Bitcoin side in the last couple of weeks. There is no way, at, given what we see right now, that oil will be priced in Bitcoin. Agreed. Yes. But but if a country wants to get the revenues in Bitcoin, they might ask for it. But there is, but there is a big issue here, and people should yeah. understand. What, uh, OPEC has a chance to conv to change the pricing of oil in 1973-1974, and they did some secret studies and some public studies. And they concluded that the dollar is the best. And one of the reasons why, because yes, the dollar value or the real value declined after we disconnected the dollar from the from gold. But in terms of volatility, still have very low volatility relative to other currencies. And if you are a producer or you are a consumer, you don't want to price your product in a very volatile currency. And to talk about Bitcoin, you don't want to make it to price it in Bitcoin when you go from 5,000 to 65,000 in a very short period of time. Yeah, I think the, I think the Bitcoin thing is interesting. Um, I, I always say my confidence of Bitcoin <clears throat> is a six to an eight, somewhere between there. I, I don't think it's going to get snuffed out completely, but I, I do think it's a far more, I do think it's more plausible than maybe the biggest Bitcoin bulls think. Um, but, you know, I think right now for cut producers, if the Bitcoin mining is something of interest, that's a way to, you know, uh, potentially uh, increase the revenue. But I don't, you know, well, I remember back when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal and they're talking about what's going to happen and, it, you know, all the sanctions with the dollar and how they can, you know, put pressure on the currency. I remember pointing out, well, why don't they just go to Bitcoin? And I was kind of being tongue in cheek. And the reason is they don't want to go to Bitcoin because no, no country wants to go to a cryptocurrency because they realize they lose the power over their, over their citizens once they, once they institute something decentralized like bitcoins so i don't think bitcoin will get any kind of global or countrywide ad ad adaptation because what sense would it make for a government to do such a thing so i think you're kind of limited there on on where to go um but i am curious like the digital yuan if you will see you know iran becoming a uh, consider working something with china on the digital yuan um and so they can try to circumvent the u.s sanctions that way it's already happened and it's been happening so there is no it's happening with Russia. It's happening with Turkey. So this been going on, and it's it happened. But they already realized that there are problems, and we've seen it before our eyes. When Turkey and Iran decided to exchange to do the trades in local currencies, okay, all of a sudden the Iranian real just collapsed, mm. and and no one on the other side will accept it. And all of a sudden, they went back and give me dollar. <laughs> and right. then they said, okay, give me gold. Uh, and then almost a year later, the Turkish currency collapsed. And the Iranian part, now they don't want it anymore. 
Well, one of my favorite stories from last year was um, the story from, I think it was Bloomberg, where Venezuela was loading up planes full of gold and sending them to Iran. <laughs> so. Correct. I mean, that's that's how they paid so they can continue the shipments. I mean, the Iranians are notorious for this, that they are willing to help, but if you stop paying, they, I mean, they really, I mean, forget about anything else. They stop, and they did it with Venezuela before they did it with India, too, when India held the payments. Uh, uh, from the previous sanctions. Uh, so they are willing really to cut them off and they cannot afford to be cut off. Okay. Um, we're going to wrap it up there. Dr. Anas Al-Haji, the great, the goat, the goat. We, we, we got to say hey to Big Orin. Hey, Big Orin. This is your, uh, this is this for you, buddy. This is just for you. So when uh, you watch this, this is yeah, big. Uh, <laughs> just for, I mean, I, I think we got to give him credit. Uh, big Orin is one of the uh, great analysts uh, out there, not only on Twitter. Basically, oh, it's in the world. Uh, I know. I, I I know you might not like this, but that's the truth, man. It is. He, he is really. He is really a great. He's a great analyst. He is a great man. A great family man. And and we don't want to release his name, um, of course. But uh, uh, he, he is he is literally one of the best out there in the world. Uh, when it comes to the uh, oil business, and he has great common sense uh, uh, in in approaching things. So uh, this is for for you, Bigorin. <laughs> We've had to clip this and send it to him. Let him make it. He can turn it to an NFT. <laughs> so we can he turn it to an NFT and sell it. Okay. Uh, okay. Working folks. So big. It's big underscore o r r i n o r two r's o r r i n on Twitter is who we're referring to, Bigorin. Who um, we both know offline. He is he's a good chap. Um, and then obviously, where can folks find you if they're not already aware of your work and us? Well, uh, Twitter Anas Al Haji, my first name, my last name A N A S A L H A J J I. The same thing for my uh, uh, website, but uh, seems like Twitter is the easiest one uh, to get uh, uh, in touch with me. Uh, generally, generally speaking, I think the big uh, thing that's coming up, and I'm uh, focusing on uh, greatly right now is really the what we are going to see in the next three years is the possible uh, complete disappointment with the uh, Green Deal, whether with uh, uh, in Europe or with uh, Biden, uh, simply because they are going to deliver, but they aren't going to deliver what they what the uh, far left wants. Okay, and also for those of you who do not know, I am now officially Anas's apprentice. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, oh. he, he, Big Orin has to give you a certificate for that. <laughs> well, listen, uh, thanks for hopping on on short notice and uh, I'll reach out. Thank I think you. It was last night or Saturday night, and we get this done. So, I really appreciate it. And uh, for the listeners, thank you so much. We'll be back next week. Have a great day. Bye.